Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 130 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that, in terms of golf, matters. And in a world where war and division seems the order of the day, it does pay to sometimes keep that in mind. I say that because I know that I've been guilty of taking the game too seriously at times, and I'm sure that's also true of my fellow travellers on this golf observation journey today. It's perhaps testament to the power and appeal of the game that otherwise intelligent men like Jeff Shackelford, Mike Clayton, and our special guest Frank Nobolo could devote so much time, energy, and passion to it. So let's meet our panel and lay out some of the topics up for discussion today. We'll start in the US with blogger, author, critic, and commentator Jeff Shackelford from LA. Jeff, been a while since we all got together, but there has been enough happening in the world of golf to keep us interested. Looking forward to touching on some of it today. Yes, absolutely. On our golf observation journey. That's a, that's a new <laughs> one. I haven't heard you say that one. That felt a little PGA Tour jargonish. Oh, but, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah, I'm Maybe sorry. Maybe I've been infected. Yeah. They've, been, they've been pretty busy lately. With the it it and sounded the like so. code for very cranky, opinionated podcast <laughs> uh, well, which is what we are. Sure, we'll get around to the events of June 6. From Melbourne, I think, though you never know where the golf odyssey might take former touring pro turned course architect and columnist Mike Clayton at any given time. Clayton, I saw you were at both Royal Melbourne and Barnboogle Dunes this past week with Suo. That's a strong flex. It's safe to say you're enjoying the Christmas New Year break? It's been good. We're at St Andrews Beach now, so it's nice down here. Uh, yeah, Royal, yeah we, the first four days of the year were Royal, uh, Royal Melbourne, then three days at Barnboogle, so... There's some pretty nice golf course architecture. The master, the master of understatement, Clates. What a start to the new year. There'll be people all over the world quite jealous of what. <laughs> Let's hope you can keep that going for the rest of the year. Finally, to mind you, sorry, mind you, sorry, Rod. I, we had dinner with Richard Sattler, and I asked him if he'd ever played a course that wasn't in the top hundred in the world because that's all he ever plays because he only plays with Bill Corn. <laughs> and he did. He, I, mean, I can't remember what it was, but he said, "Yeah, I've, I've played one course that isn't in the top hundred. So because Richard's a complete hacker, lovely guy, say, total he, novice, wasn't he? Built a golf course, had never didn't, played. Didn't the play game. golf. Didn't play golf. <laughs> Amazing. So we went. So we went and played the par three course, and we oh, we were laughing, funny. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, indeed. Let's get to our special guest for episode 130. He's a contemporary of Mike Clayton's, and they have some Marvel stories to tell of their time together on the European tour, but Frank Nobolo is better known to most as one of the more thoughtful and eloquent TV voices in the game. He's a former touring professional himself whose career was cut short by injury, and he recently made headlines for some comments he made on Gary Williams' Five Clubs podcast, something I hope he's planning to pay us the courtesy of repeating today for the benefit of our little program. Frank, welcome. Looking forward to the chat. Thank you. I'm happy to uh, join the quartet of cranky people. <laughs> you, f- you fit right in. Uh, you said to Gary Williams that golfers, I think, were overvalued compared to other sports or something along those lines. Uh, a, I'll get you to clarify that you did mean that, that it wasn't out of context. But B, what sort of response have you had to that? Has there been a general tone um, to the to the blowback? Mixed, really. Uh Fortunately, I wasn't on tour at that, that, that particular time, but <laughs> no, I've, I've felt that way for a long period of time. Um, I remember actually, uh, my family, we went on a trip to Croatia. This is 2019. And, you know, you turn on the TV and, you know, I like, like all sports, whether it's cricket, bat and ball, you name it. And volleyball was on. And, you know, one minute it was Serbia playing China, it was male, female. It was great. And then I thought, you know, I wonder how highly that rates. So, you know, you just grab your phone, look into it. And I was surprised how volleyball worldwide outranked golf. And so I literally reiterated that to Gary. You know, I don't see volleyball players, male or female, driving around in Ferraris or flying and flying privately. They love the game just like we love golf. 
And, and I think when you sort of look at the ecosystem and the way in which people grow up to their respective sports, um, they have the same sort of passion. And, and I just think, you know, golf to a certain degree um, has continued to go get off the rolls, off the rails. You know, Mike and I, we've known each other for, I don't know, 50 years plus. And, um, you know, we're both passionate about it. So we grew up in a different era. We saw golf, you know, it was almost just like a bat and ball game. It went through that huge um, run through the 90s, you know, Metal Woods, you know, and everything's gone crazy ever since. So we have a different perspective, say, for example, that someone that's grown up in the game just 10 years ago in the Tiger Woods era. But I think you still have to have comparisons that are very valid. And I think if golf considers to consider itself a leader in individual sports, then it should be weighed up fairly against other sports in the world. When you do that, uh, it, it actually is quite disappointing. Is, are you suggesting that's a more recent phenomenon? Have golfers always been overvalued? Were Nicholas Palmer player? Was that era overvalued? Or what's your sense about that? <clears throat> that's a great question. I think, you know, Jeff and, and Glates can weigh in on that. But no, I, I, I think you've got to give credit to whether it's Peter Thompson, whether it's, you know, you go back to the old Tom Morrises of the world. The game has evolved. We've known that. And we've wanted to get, we've wanted the game to get bigger and better. When I grew up, obviously, in New Zealand, I had a global uh, perspective of it. I was a kid, a very small country, in those days, three and a half million people. So I was exposed to the biggest events through TV. And that's what you aspire to do, whether it's to play in Asia, then Europe, and then obviously finish up in America. But I think I still kept that view that golf really belongs to the world. Um, it's a, it's professional sport, really, it becomes like a melting pot. Where's the most money? Mm -hmm. And most players gravitated towards America because it was, number one, easier to travel, and obviously, secondly, which is exactly the same now as you played for more money. So it was more convenient. Um, you know, that hasn't changed. So I, I think if you just follow that linear passage that, that golf has taken, it's continued to step forward. Players have continued to try and get more money. But I think when you look at the Nicholas's and the Palmers, they really did spread the game around the world. They would play in the Australian Open. Um, that was considered the fifth biggest major. They would play in Europe. Um, there wasn't a 12-month sort of PGA Tour schedule. So I think they felt that there was an obligation to give back. I remember the, the first round of golf I ever had was at a golf course called Chamberlain Parks, public golf course in, in Auckland and New Zealand. It's actually under threat now, the land that is. But that's where Nicholas and Palmer play. And, and that's where most young kids sort of got exposed to the best players in the world. We've seen less of a trend of that. We've seen golf being shared less and less over the last 20, 25 years around the world. What would happen if Tiger and Rory turned up at Chamberlain Park in 2024, do you reckon, Frank? Assuming it was it, it still, be, still there, it would be enormous, wouldn't it? That's what you're suggesting, no, really, no, of the time. That's what you were suggesting. Yeah, that's huge because it would that would spurn a new generation of players playing the game. You need stars. Um, I'd say the same with rugby in New Zealand. As rugby's gone professional, it's going to hurt rugby in New Zealand because our best players, considered some of the best in the world for you know hundred plus years, are now being exported overseas for money. So now, when you take your best players out of a regional area like like New Zealand, which is quite small, so rather than a sixteen or seventeen year old kid playing alongside an All Black, he's now playing alongside a second or a third string player. That's going to affect their development. So you need to have your best on hand. Yeah. Clates, were you overvalued as a player? You and Frank? Well, is that a new phenomenon? The first Australian Open I went to, they played for $20,000 at Kingston Heath. Gary Player won, I think, 3000 three and a bit thousand. And 10 years later, we were playing for 
75,000. We thought we were playing for fortunes. You were. And we were compared with those guys. The, the, the interesting thing about the Palmer and Player question, they, they came down to Australia. It was part of a deal that Martin McCormick did with Dunlop Stasinger. And I, I remember reading in 1968, I think Palmer made $48,000 from his Australian contract, which was probably half the club sold in Australia. One half were PGF pretty much. And the other half were Dunlop Stasinger. And most of the Dunlop Stasinger clubs were they had Palmer player or Nicholas's name on it, and Bruce Devlin. And I think Palmer made $48,000 in the late 60s for, for a year with his endorsement of Dunlop clubs. And it meant they 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 came down here because of their contract with Dunlop Stasinger. But $48,000 in 1968 for Arnold Palmer was probably a lot of money. Yeah. Well, well, worth coming to Australia, wasn't it? Yeah. To play yeah. good golf courses against yeah. good yeah. players and, you know, and, all you know, that adds up, doesn't fr- it? In front of adoring crowds mm. and, you know, they, they love watching them play. But the equivalent of $48,000 in 2024 is what are these – when you look at the live money, it's nothing. No. But it was a lot of money then. Now, I, I think it. I think from memory it was – McCormick said it was one of his bigger contracts. Right. So, you know, Palm was obviously a wealthy guy, hugely wealthy in the end, but – you know, the, the numbers are completely mad now. Uh, yeah, and it seems to me, Jeff, I think you're – this is probably what you write about often is at the very top end, and Clates has made this argument, Tiger is probably undervalued. But he might be the only golfer that's true of, isn't it? The rest of the field has been brought up to varying degrees by his extraordinary success, and I think Frank's right. Many are overvalued. We see this – the Australian Open's a great barometer for this, I think – I think it was probably about 10 or 15 years ago, Clates. Did we pay Billy Mayfair $300,000 to come and play in the Australian Open one year? No, or maybe Bob Estes? No, I remember I played with Bob Estes. At, he played mm. at, I played with him at Royal Queensland in a PGA. But, yeah, but yeah we, you know, we've always you – know, that sounds like a lot for oh, – I don't I, remember I, him playing. But, you know, oh, it definitely sounds like a lot. It does sound yeah, like for those guys. <laughs> you know, we've, we've paid a lot of guys down here over the years to come and play here. Yeah. The point being, I guess, Jeff, I mean, whether that's the right figure or the number, I think we have had to pay – and this is one of the things that's happened to Australian golf. The PGA Tour wraparound schedule hasn't helped us, but we can't afford top players anymore. Uh, even second-string players are demanding too much money. Is that kind of the point that Frank's making, do you think, Jeff? Uh, I think the the – well, listening to both of them, I, I guess my my question is, are, I, I, yes, maybe the golfers have always been overvalued, but uh, have we – I think we've reached a point, though, where uh, people like Frank are saying it and I've written about it. Um, it doesn't seem like they're aware – uh, that, that they really are riding on the coattails of tiger. Uh, and they have allowed this situation with live to, and the new TV money and, and all that to make them believe they're worth something more than they are. And, and, and I just can't think of many players out there who people buy a ticket to actually go see, uh, which is, which is a, um, a big problem because I do think there have been people generally, all the time that people have actually wanted to come out and watch. And the fact that that's not being addressed to me is uh, the parody situation essentially, and the um, overinflated sense of worth um, is, is a problem and it's going to get worse because we now know the players are sort of running things. Um, Tim Fincham kind of kept them in line somehow. Uh, Dean Beeman certainly probably did and got him in trouble many times. But and he was probably wrong a few times, but 
the point is they're they are kind of running the the ship now and nobody wants to tell them that there is a there's a number and i think some major corporations are doing that now uh that that you're worth and and you're not worth more than that and uh and and I that bothers me less than the fact that there isn't an awareness that you know this is something we should be concerned about. And you you know we've discussed it so many times because we feel the equipment is a big part of driving the entitlement, driving the parity, and the inability of somebody to 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 really stand out the way Tiger did. And 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 in a way, it's a lovely tribute to Tiger and maybe Phil as well. Because they experienced the biggest equipment changes uh, of any players, any all-time great players during the arc of their career. But anyway, to the bigger point, and that's what I'd love to to hear from from Frank and Clates. And Clates has been around some good players lately. Is you know, just uh, is there? You know, Rory feels like he's the one guy who is aware of this mm. topic that we're kicking around. I don't feel like there are many others, though. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the one argument. I heard against Frank's volleyball analogy was that golf's demographic who watch are more attracted to advertisers than the people who are watching volleyball. But I think, you know, Frank's point was exactly right. I mean, it's in, golf's been incredibly fortunate. It's, you know, the people who are advertising golf like the people who watch golf because they buy BMWs and they bank at Wells Fargo and not not for much it. longer, Clates. Not at no, not Hollow, for much anyway. longer. Yeah. And no, that's telling yeah. in itself, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was to Jeff's point. You know, the twenty million dollars. No, we're not paying that. Clates, you you hang around a lot of young, good players. You mentioned that you were in Bamboo and Royal Melbourne with Suo, and lots of them come through Metro. Not star names, not the huge names. But Cam Davis played in the Sandbelt Invitational. Yeah. Do you sense more entitlement from what we might call this modern generation of players than from players in the past? And the same question for you, Frank. Have a think of it, Bob, about it while Clates answers. Think about the players you played with, and now the the young players that you play with these days. Well, not the ones I hang, I mean, hang around. I mean, Cam Davis was, I mean, he plays that Sandbelt tournament where he, you know, he clearly doesn't, you know, the prize money is $180,000. He clearly, no, he's not playing for the money, but he was going to be late for the registration on Sunday and twice he texted, once when he landed, once when he was halfway down, sorry, I'm going to be late. It was five o'clock deadline. Well, it wasn't a deadline, but and he arrived at 20 past five. I mean, you couldn't meet a nicer guy who, who comes down, he plays with the kids, and he's fantastic. So there's one guy who's the opposite of entitled. Um, I mean, Sue's on the LPJ, so not many people on the LPJ are entitled because the money's so re- relative to the men. Well, do you reckon? I wonder if you ask some of the older LPJ. Oh, uh, well, well, yeah. You, you, well, see, you, see, yeah. you see a bit yeah, of that probably yeah, about that. Probably, yeah. 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 Um, but this generation, yeah, yeah, I'm not. I mean, Frank's much more aware of it than I am because he's there most weeks. But it seems like they've never complained more about how poorly they're paid. You know, I'm, I've, I've, I've paid better. <laughs> you, know, you know, I've I've just finished reading a book called The Age of Palmer, which went through the 1960s on the PGA Tour, which was, you know, when we were kids. I mean, Frank and I, we, you know, that was the was almost the year we grew up. I mean, I was first aware of golf in the late 60s, and we, you know, we thought these guys were. But when you're a kid, I think you make the assumption if someone's famous, they're rich. Yeah. And that, it was the vagabond era of the tour. The, I mean, and, and that was coming out of the 40s and 50s, which truly was the vagabond era. But, the, but you know, you look at the money those guys were making in the 60s, apart from obviously the superstars, and they weren't, you know, this was not a group of entitled men because they weren't making enough money to feel like they were entitled, but they were terrific players. But now 
you know, we always equate, or, or the, the mistake you all humans make is equating money with worth. So because these guys are making so much money, they, you know, it's, it's understandable as young men, they feel like they're, you know, there's that sense of entitlement we talk about. Frank, is there more of it? And is that a natural progression? Should we expect that each generation will feel more entitled to the last? Is that not, in fact, how progress works? Sadly, I think you're right. <laughs> it is how progress works. But And Plates is right, too. You know, we conflate fame with wealth or wealth with fame these days. You know, if you're a Donald Trump, you're famous. You're, it could make him become a president once again, those type of things. So, so we... We conflate the two together. But to answer your question, yeah, I remember a situation just a couple of years ago where I had a friend and his friend had a son. His son had gone through college and his 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 uh, friend's son was good enough to get on the corn furry tour. Anyway, played the corn furry tour for, for a year and lost money. And um, his 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 father was absolutely abhorred the fact that he could lose money taking up a profession. So his his friend sort of conveyed the message to me, and I said, well, he went to college, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, he was a really good player. He said, so he didn't have to pay the usual $65,000 a year or whatever it is to play for, to, you know, to, to go to a nice college. He said, no, 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 he got, he got a, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he got a scholarship. And I said, well, that's great. I said, has he ever had an operation? I said, well, what's that got to do with it? He said, well, you know, like, so there's some world-class surgeons. I said, I've had a few. And I said, most of them, they went to college. They finished up with massive student loans, maybe a quarter of a million dollars. And they went into their practice. And eventually, they became leading leading surgeons. And if you're good enough to get or lucky enough to get one of those surgeons, they operate you on and they've, they've proved your worth. But just because your friend's son liked golf and got a scholarship, that doesn't mean that equates to... I'm a professional golfer now, somebody should pay me. So that attitude, I think, is more prevalent now where people think I'm a professional, I should be paid. And that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, golf, you know, people throw the word meritocracy around, but but I still believe in the purity part of it where, you know, you you you, you eat, eat what you find, basically. If you're good enough, you eat well. Not anymore. And though, if Frank, you're not, it? sadly, you yeah, you've got to move away and and uh, make way for somebody else. Biggest That's point. always been the the beauty of this game. Mm. Um, and it's the same with equipment. The same thing. You know, if you were bought, if we were brought up in our generation and you saw the advent of the wooden driver going to the metal wood, you'd be at hoard with the way in which the game is now. But a lot of people grew up in that Tiger Woods era, so they only know the equipment of today. So when you say we're going to roll the ball back, they're they're obviously like you can't do that. You know this is the only game I've known. I've only known three hundred plus yard drives. Right. So it's very hard to try and educate people. And I I choose that word wisely. And I'm not saying being a historian, but just tell people you're actually missing out on a huge part of what this game's all about. You know, sport for example, I was reading the other day, sport um, sport sport started seven thousand years before people learned to read or write. Right. So they've known sport for many in a day. Someone hit a stick around, you know, a stick and hit a rock or kicked a rock around. People ran, whatever the case may be. They they learned that very early on in their in, in civilization. So you fast forward to now, it's still a basic bat and ball game. But we've deviated away from that purely for financial reasons, club manufacturers and the like. Uh, college scholarship or somebody coming from Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and they think they've got this right to be a professional and therefore be paid ridiculous amounts of money. No, that money is available should they be good enough. And that's the only caveat I'd put in. I'm I'm fine if they earn top dollar, Mm. providing they earn it. It's not their right, though, just because they play golf. 
Is this not the biggest fundamental change that Liv has brought us, though, Frank, is that golf is no longer an eat-what-you-kill sport at the top level. You start the year with 500000 in your bank account. And that's never been yeah, the case. Yeah, well, well livers are destabilizing. L- livers like the real estate market, right? If I want to sell my house right now, right, and I can't find a buyer, so therefore I'm going to sell in a in a in a in a buyer's market. I'm going to get bottom dollar. But if all of a sudden six people want my house, then I'm going to get an overinflated price. You just we happen to have the worst case scenario. We've had this huge golf boom where manufacturers have actually ruled the roost and and changed the direction of the game, right? And we've accepted that. You could even you know, Jeff and, and Mike could probably weigh into this far more than I, but you know, if you look at golf course communities, I think in the 50s and the 60s, 25% of all golf courses that were built were golf course community golf courses. And that's the advent of the longer golf course. More real estate, I want to live on the 18th hole, so let's make the 18th hole 500 yards. You fit more houses on it. So we finished up with longer golf courses, right? And then the advent of that was, okay, we need to make clubs that go a little longer. They fit the golf course. You know, one fits into the other. And then you sort of fast forward down this track and we finish here. And then you look at somewhere like Saudi Arabia where, okay, when the oil runs out, everybody's talked about it. What are they going to do next? Well, sport is a great vehicle. You know, I remember going to a seminar in New York. I was sent there by the Golf Channel 15 years ago. And TV was talking about the most valuable products going forward. And the answer was live sport. Yeah, of course. Because live sport's the one thing you will watch live, right? Everything else you can take. So, you know, the Saudis are very clever. I know they're looking at tennis as well. Sport is a game that they would love to be involved for some of the reasons that have already been mentioned. The demographics, they buy nice cars. Clayton's mentioned that. You know, they travel in hotels. I understand it's a very specific demographic that golf golf exists within. But still, it's it's... It's very advantageous for them to latch onto this game because there's not a lot of players in it. And I'm not talking about the physical ones that actually hit the bat and ball Mm. too. You have the PGA Tour, you have the European Tour, the rest are being consumed, really. So they only really have two to worry about. They had two options, right? One which was to go and buy the European Tour, which I think they probably should have. They They tried, Frank. So the other one was to start a rival tour. And, you know, like John Rahm was the last pawn. You only need one more, one pawn on the chessboard to win, right? That's that's really all you need. One pawn, and John Rahm was that last pawn, a very valuable one that we're not messing around, and that's all we have to play for. And that's gonna that's the one that tipped the balance. So I imagine by the end of this year, things will change, not necessary for the better, but they will change this year. What will it look like, Frank? What will that look like at the end of this year? Do you think? That's that's the 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 billion dollar question. I, I actually don't think it'll be that different to what we had before. Sadly, I think. Uh, the PJ Tour will 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 regain a lot of its power. I think maybe Live might be a smaller version that's in the off season. The full series that's already been sort of caved. What mm-hmm. cut a piece at the back end there where you could um, maybe have these guys play in that team type event. If that went around the world, that mightn't be a bad thing. They could pocket a lot of money in that, but it's still events. They all say they want to play less, right? So how do you then put in 10 or 12 events after when they said they didn't, they, they're already playing too much? So there's a few things that have to work out. But, um, you know, maybe one of the byproducts, the money coming in, you reduce commercial load, um, the bill and the end all, that balances up some of the $700 million a year that TV is playing. I mean, there's a few things to figure it out. But I think, I think it gets resolved quite quickly this year because the whole rhetoric has changed over the last sort of two to three weeks. Yeah, as Rory, I think, Chuck, has Rory been saying in this last couple of days that he's been rethinking, he's accepted the new landscape and yeah, move forward? Did I say read that? between the lines, that means, you know, it's it's close. Yeah. What do you reckon, Chuck? Is Frank right about that? At the end of this year, it'll be a very different looking product, but it will be basically resolved? 
I, I'm struggling to see how they get it resolved that quickly. They, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe if you read into Rory's, I feel like Rory's just say, is just trying to get all this crap off his plate to focus on golf. Uh, he has plenty of money. He realized he got burned being the front man, but maybe, maybe it is close, but I I'm struggling to see that. Cause I just feel like they're, they're making it up as they go. Uh, and there is, there's got to be some explanation for what these people are going to invest all this money in that that's is remaining separate of the tournament model. That's going to remain a nonprofit model, which I I don't believe will be the case. I think it, that will collapse. Yeah. You're going to lose a few more tournaments, and um, it just feels like that's. And maybe they know that. Maybe that's where they're they're creating this enterprises element to take that uh, over when that falls apart. And they'd be the and they really are the last sports league in the United States operating under that um, silly nonprofit thing. So. I feel like it's going to take longer and it's going to be more chaotic. And then you're going to probably have a change at the top. And that seems to be inevitable. And then you have the media landscape, which we we won't make Frank uncomfortable and, and, uh, <laughs> and put him on the spot because nobody has a clue how this is going to work out, but it's going to be a crazy year on the media side uh, between, uh, you know, the companies that are, that are possibly going to be swallowed up or the ones that are going to be doing the swallowing. And some of those, are very involved in golf and uh, uh, you know, the streaming numbers are changing and, and uh, at some point that's going to have to be addressed too. Um, but it seems to me like right now, everything is about making sure to protect that current television contract. Um, so that may mean more stability for, for a little while. So that could be a positive. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it's going to be more, more of the the ups and downs and i mean just just i'm not to go on a tangent but just look at this player of the year thing again if 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 these sides are close why do you suspend john rom and then you have the player of the year vote december 1 through 15 and scotty scheffler wins he wasn't the player of the year um so yeah you just feel there's this there's a divide there still that i'm i'm struggling to see that this this coming together soon um so isn't the those are just the tea leaves i'm reading yeah isn't the biggest problem shack and it's one we're acutely aware of here in australia is scheduling golf's biggest problems generally tend to come down to scheduling as frank made the point if liv wants you to play 14 events that doesn't leave a lot of space no, to play a whole no. Lot of and the majors golf. yeah and it's your 18. home country event and all that i think it's different than that rod I, I mean yes it is scheduling i think it's philosophy and i think frank and plates already just touched on it and and you know lawrence and i have talked about it on on the mckellar pod that it just feels like rom and rory have that global golfer mentality uh, and feel they still feel a real obligation to to take the game around the world, the places that and go home. And we know Rory is he's happier when he's playing overseas. He just he just seems happier. Um, not that he's unhappy playing in the United States. He just is. It's like there's a little something extra in his a little pep in his step. And I, I it just feels to me like we're looking at uh, the PGA Tour wants to be the U.S. organization because they have these television contracts and their players don't really want to travel more than about 20 minutes to play a tournament. And then you have other people who are looking at F1 and they're looking at other things. They're looking at the ratings that, that Frank's talked about and they're seeing uh, a need to reimagine this as a global, at least the star element of it, the top player part as a global tour. And I just don't see 
any sign that that those two philosophies are coming together, but maybe they are with this thing that, that Rory floated uh, in that recent interview. Is the reality? Do we see, Frank, sorry, quite. Do we, Frank, do you see Tiger coming back this year and playing? I mean, his swing looks great. Is he physically capable of? I, mean, I don't doubt he could win a tournament again. I think he's still capable of winning. Never doubt Tiger, Clates. Never doubt. People have lost a lot of money doubting Tiger Woods over the years. Mm. Well, you know, nobody beats Father Time, but I think that last surgery that he had that fused the bone. What is yeah. it? Uh, I'm not an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon, but what is it? Uh, starts with a T. Um, it's within your ankle there. So fusing that has actually sort of helped him walk. But you know, he, he did look good. But, but you know, as he would say, you know, reps needs reps. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing for him to compete now. You know, this is a generation that grew up idolizing him, mimicking, copying him, the way in which they train and do all that. So, you know, he's these guys don't have the same scar tissue as the ones yeah. that grew up. Obviously, if they got drawn with him in the first two rounds, it's it's quite different. But, you know, Tiger somehow has got to get himself in contention on the right type of golf course. And I yeah. think unlike the Nicholas era where he could go to Augusta National and have a huge advantage because Jack competed there nearly into his 50s, um, I, th I think Augusta has changed a little bit, the fact that they are so powerful and, and, that, and that he is giving up distance. I know he can still get it out there. But, you know, the ability to fly, fly the ball through the air. And, um, and even though his putting stroke hasn't really changed that much over the years, I just think some of these guys too, they can flat out play and they flat out go low. Yeah. So I, I think that that environment has changed a little bit. But yeah, given the right golf course, his ability, if you go back to 2019 when he won his final Masters, it was a bit, it was reminiscent of Jack in 1986. If once they were exposed to the lead of the event, they looked bulletproof. Mm. And, and I, was, I was on 11 and 12. And as soon as, you know, the guys stumbled there on that early start on the Sunday and hit it in a race creek, Tiger went straight over the middle bunker, hit the right shot. And up until the second shot in 18, it was flawless. And that's so hard to do under the crutch. So, yeah, I, th I think that intangible, you can't teach that. He'll have that forever and a day. So, yeah, that part's scary, the fact that he can still get the job done should he get the chance. Yeah, you talk about the scar tissue. There was a bit of scar tissue on that 12th hole from – now, guys who weren't Ernie Elson, Phil Mick was in Generation, but Molinari and was it Molinari and Finau? Molinari, and who those guys who yeah, all Finau. dumped it in the water. Yeah, and I mean, Kepka, was, yeah. yeah was Molinari a, was coming off, remember, he just won at Murphy. Yeah. He was coming off his best ever season, and he was one of the best players in the world at that particular time. It was a three-quarter eight-on, which is probably his best shot in his bag. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was the one time in your career when you're playing your best ever golf and you had a shot like that. Ian Poulter, Finau. Uh, Kepka and there was one other, and I forget the the other one that were involved in those last two threesomes. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary stuff. He's created his own nightmare in some ways, hasn't he, Frank Tiger? As you've just mm. said, he's created a generation of these golf machines that, as he ages, is uh, proving harder and harder to beat. I was just thinking when Chuck was talking earlier, Frank, are there enough top stars in golf to legitimately make it the non niche sport that it kind of is? We in golf idolize quite a few of these people, but are there enough of them broadly for golf to take a higher place? Do you know what does that make sense what I'm yeah. saying there? You want to start living, yeah, you I, take I, the top 48 players. The reality of that is even if you had the top 48 in the world rankings, the truth is less than 10 of them would be known outside golf. Yeah. I, as a kid, I remember one of the few things my dad did with me, he, he, used, he took me to wrestling 
And um, I remember in Auckland going to you know downtown and you'd see wrestling. There was a guy called Bobo Brazil, another guy called Killer Kowalski. And, you know, you had your hero and you had your villain. And I, I think if you can't have a Tiger Woods or a Jack Nicholas, I mean, they're, they're obviously generate well, once in a hundred years, I guess. Um, you need you need your villains and you need your heroes. So if you flash back four or five years, I actually thought the game was in a really healthy place because you had a lot of players from all over the world. Throw Cameron Smith, the way in which he was developing and trending. It was great. So you had an Aussie involved. You know, you had Rory, the Irishman. You had a couple of English guys that were really starting to play well. You had DeChamba, who was the crazy scientist. But I thought what he brought to the game was interesting. Mm. It was so different to what we're getting week in, week out. Some people would call BS on it. But, you know, single-length irons, all this sort of stuff, bit of a throwback. Bobby Jones had single-length irons. And then, you know, you had Kepka. You know, he was sort of this, I don't care what you have to say about me, throwing a Dustin Johnson. You couldn't get a player more laconic than that. And, you know, sprinkle in, you know, Phil being Phil and all that. I actually thought we were we were replacing Woods actually in a better way by having this really diverse look at the top of the leaderboard. So you didn't necessarily need to have them all there every week. But if you had three or four of them, you're going to have a good tournament. Doesn't matter where that was in the world. And some of them traveled as well. So they went around the world. So so to answer your question, yes. Mm. And that's why we've got to get them back as soon as possible. I think both sides sort of realize that, that, that this split right now, all it's done really is piss people off, right? Yeah. If you're a golf fan, you hate it. If you're a live supporter, you still wish some of the other guys were playing on live. And if you're an anti-live guy, you wish those guys were back on the tour yeah. in all truthfulness. Divided we fall. Both Clates uh, and I had a bit of a smile there at Killer Kowalski, Frank, because if you grow up yeah. in this part of the world, <laughs> do yeah. you know, to go on a tangent, when I worked in Wollongong many years ago, Killer Kowalski actually lived in Kiamra, a little town south of Wollongong, and crash-tackled a guy in a car park who was trying to steal a woman's handbag at the age of 70 or 71, I think he was. It was a fabulous story. Killer Kowalski's still out there uh, getting the job done. Sorry, Shaq, you've got can, no can idea I, about Yeah, well, I want to ask Frank, <laughs> just on, on that topic of the star power, how, how much do you – yeah, it just feels like the tour is very much a marketing organization. And and yep. we we feel on this show that, that the equipment – uh, is a part of the problem in both creating parity and and also not bringing out personality. And the tour literally to the last minute, even after the comment period, was fighting this watered down um, change in the equipment testing that's not coming till 2028. Uh, how much do you feel like we is is kind of geared towards the shift in the game towards power? The equipment, uh, launch monitors, uh, how much of that would you, if you were commissioner, would you take a look at to try and, and one, create more stars, but also just to create, bring, you know, make the shot tracer cool again by seeing balls move? I, I love a lot of that. I, I don't think you can put the genie totally back in the bottle. So launch monitors, for example, are here to stay, but... <laughs> The equipment, you know, look at tennis, you know, what tennis did with the ball. I mean, you guys know that I love tennis as well. And and tennis has stood up to some things. They didn't change the dimension of the court. Golf, we allowed this to happen because going back to architecture, we kept increasing the footprint. And as much as the USGA and the RNA, would, if you went back to the Frank Thomas days, they would say we're not interested in the winning score. Everything said they were. You know, even power to US Open and all that. So we just, we basically manufactured a score. And if they didn't, I think we would have reached the stage much earlier because they'd be breaking 60 every week, at least once. Mm. 
Right. They, they really would. But we we somehow managed to rail the score in and people could say, look, it's the same winning score as what it was 30 years ago. No, yeah. it's it's not the same. But to your point, yeah, I, I agree with you. These guys are that good. And, I, and I've always said that. I love the way they play. They just are playing with equipment that doesn't really show a lot of what they're capable of. Hmm. You know, one of the best shots I saw in 2023 was McElroy and actually Bobby McIntyre, hmm. second shots into 18, right? The hole was only 440 yards because they pushed the tee forward. And yet it was a drive in a utility club for McIntyre and it was a drive in a two or modified one on for McElroy. It, it was, that was brilliant. That's all you're asking them to do. Actually, going back to Royal Melbourne, I know you said you're playing there, Clay. So, I mean, I was down there for the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship. Jasper Stubbs won. Three-way playoff, right? Who remembers the winning score? It was 285, one over. It was a great playoff. I actually thought it was a great amateur championship. This, the winning yeah. score was irrelevant, and, and I think that's where people get hung up. If they don't see 20 under, they think, well, the guys aren't playing well enough or whatever. We get we get fixated by the score instead of the style of golf. I thought the style of golf I saw in, in Royal Melbourne, I remember we had Jeff Ogilvy in the box there for the last sort of hour and a half. I thought it was great. I thought it was – that event did so much, and, and it, it made me still be a believer in amateur golf and where golf was heading because yeah. I saw a lot of good shot making. The score was, was irrelevant. And it, and it so, showed how it, and it showed how important the golf course was to making golf interesting. You know exactly. how you know you, we see so many. Well, everything's a subpar course in comparison to Royal Melbourne, but it showed how much more interesting the game was when it was a bit of wind and the greens were bouncy. And I mean, no one birdied that eighteenth hole the whole day with the pin in the right corner over the bunker, and they both birdied it in the playoff. I mean, it was amazing to watch, and you know. If it had been the finish of the US Masters, it would have been historic. It was epic, incredible, yeah. the finish. Yeah, it was, it was an epic finish. But, you know, going to the cutting for Elvis in the tour school in Spain, it's not, I mean, we knew it already, but the problem is there are there are way too many kids now because the money's so good. There are way too many kids and just not enough jobs. That's, that's the real problem. Yeah. And, and the equipment's doing nothing to differentiate the players. So there's just this massive pool of players all about the same skill level and ability because they all drive at 300 yards and straight and relatively straight. And so, and you know, Rory's two on was the shot of the year because it was a two on into a par four. Mm. When apparently Mike Wine asked Rory when the last time he had a six on to a par four was, this is before Scotland. He said, I don't remember. You know, so, you know, that's the, the, the harder the equipment is to use, the better it is for the, in terms of differentiating the talent, which is what you want. That's the, Tragedy of the whole thing is that there are so many kids now who think they're good enough. It's when there just aren't enough jobs. It's what the players should want, though, isn't it, Clint? Who doesn't? Absolutely. I would have thought yeah, Rory wants it, to it, stand it, on 15 no. with a one iron at well, Augusta and hit a shot that others can't. That well, you'd think he no. would want that. You'd think the players would want well, that. Yeah, but the players are owned by Titleists, essentially. The players are told to shut up and don't talk about it. So Rory and Tiger are the only two players that are big enough to talk about this. The rest of them are getting paid too much to say anything. Even well, if they believe it, they're not going to say it. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing I would add too, though, and I'd sort of differ, right? I think because if you're not one of the best players in the world, you fear being exposed. To be honest, I, I remember the Irish Open years ago. I was driving it all over the place, and I was like one or two behind Olathabel going into eighteen. And I remember hitting a one iron off the tee, and Jack Newton was on the call, and he was right. He goes, "Well, you know, if you're one or two back, you've got to hit driver there." But I couldn't find it. I was you know, basically playing for second place. So so I think you have to be honest with yourself sometimes and go, I'm going to be exposed on this golf course. 
But the problem is right now they're not being exposed, and that's why they're not forced to get a little bit better. And conversely, to Jeff's point about parity, is the best players, they're not getting the reward for being better. So, so you know, you've actually got exactly what you've designed the game to be, which is everybody basically in a nice, comfy spot. But sadly, the best players are saying, well, you know, you know it's, it's like a Formula One race where they're just all tucked up behind each other. It's no fun. Jeff, the, the rollback's been pretty somewhat controversial. We've seen the 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 sky's going to fall in stuff from those who think that it's a bad idea, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels to me like we often look at this through the wrong lens. We look at it through the lens of players. What does it mean for players? And the reality of what we, that whole discussion we just had, particularly about Royal Melbourne, is uh, the equipment really is about the golf courses. It's what makes golf different, isn't it? Tennis courts are tennis courts. Football fields are football fields. Golf courses are completely different. If you took Augusta National, completely reproduced it and put it in Sydney, it wouldn't be the same because it's a part of there's so many elements to it. And that feels like what gets overlooked in the rollback discussion, this notion of the ball going too far. People think it's about players, but it's about courses really, isn't it? And that's what makes the game more interesting. Well, it's only about the courses. You know, it's about Royal Melbourne and Augusta being able to stick a four iron in someone's hand on a par four again. Because that's, you know, that was Tillinghouse's ultimate test of a, you know, a great player was a long iron to a tight green, you know, wing foot. But we just don't. Having said that, the standard six iron goes, what, 200 yards now, Frank? Pretty much? Minimum. Yeah, for yeah. some. So, you know, <coughs> when we start there, no, it's nearly a seven iron. Yes. Yeah. So when we start there are no long irons, that it's ridiculous how far irons go now. And, you know, Elvis is. We kept having we, – we, we had the exact 160-metre number, so 175 yards at the, at the Australian Open about five times we had the same number. That's an eight-iron. You know, I mean, 175 yards was a – that was a five-iron for everyone in the world 50 yeah, years ago, not 40 to years jump ago. jump in again, but, but what about if you attack the, the argument another way? You said, okay, let's give everybody another 30 yards. So look at it the other way. Let's give everybody another mm. 30 yards. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people people say, well, why are you going to do that? That's crazy. So, so in other words, <laughs> once again, it's it's the generation you grew up in. So if you started playing golf in 205, for example, you're used to this type of golf. So so they they sort of see themselves in a box. This is this is golf the way they see it, right? So mm. it's it's very hard to get people to look beyond that station. I, I was born in 1960, right? So my my view of the game is there. If I talk to Jack Nicholas, his view obviously starts a lot earlier. And, you know, change the generation, you're going to change the argument. So, so there has to be a way to try and get people to to look at it differently. The, the term rollback is negative, right? Yeah. Mm. And, and I think that's the whole thing is that we start with a negative connotation, right? We're going to, we're taking away rather than actually making the game better again. And and so I actually think it's a bad PR campaign. I remember talking to some people at the R, the RNA and the USGA over the last couple of years. I have the utmost respect for them, and I know what they're trying to do. And and it's hard because they went into this this conversation period with the manufacturers, and basically they gave the manufacturers the keys to the castle. And the manufacturers were the one that spilt the beans a, a, a week before the announcement. Mm. So in other words, we go into an agreement, we tell you exactly how we're going ahead, and then you go and spill the beans. Mm. I mean, that's a really good partnership, isn't it? So, mm. you know, and, and they love the word rollback because they know it's negative. They can get all the the people that buy their products to go, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Then the PGA of America doesn't jump on board. The PGA Tour doesn't jump on board. It's great. We've got everybody saying your idea is terrible. I mean, it's it was such a witch hunt when when really it's like 
hey, I know it sounds a bit prosaic, but make the game great again. Mm. I know I'm staring well, at a tagline there, but yeah. <laughs> well, you're kind of right. Though. What, what are the alternatives? Is anybody? I've not. Heard, I've heard many people make that same argument, Frank, and it's a legitimate one. Rollback is a negative and a reductionist mm. way to talk, and that's easy to to speak against. But what are the alternatives, Shaq? Have you heard anything that? I mean, make golf great again is a little bit, unfortunately, it's kind of been taken. But that Brexit means Brexit, these simple three or four word slogans, they really seem to cut through. What could we possibly have for rollback instead of rollback that might achieve that for us? I can't think of anything. It's it's difficult, I think. If it- if you don't know, say no. Which is the- <laughs> if you don't know, vote no. <laughs> Interestingly, Clay's from the same people who just 12 months earlier were saying, do your own research. <laughs> yeah, which was the slogan, the opposition to the, um, the voice voice to yeah. parliament in, in Australia, the uh, um, Aboriginal question. The, the, the Conservatives came out with a, if you don't know, vote no. And someone said, well, if you don't know, find out, you freaking. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Shaq, what? Yeah. What Frank's pointed to there is actually really important, isn't it? We probably don't talk about it enough. This fractured relationship between the manufacturers and the governing bodies really does make this kind of difficult, does it? Or does it make it easier in some ways? The the real positive, I think, we're all agreed that what they've announced they're going to do isn't really much. And in fact, by the time it's implemented, the ball will probably be going further with the, the rollback equipment than it is now. We all accept that. But it feels to me the most important part of this is it opens the door We've done it once, we can do it again, that you can then perhaps start to, in the longer term, rein things in. But that fractured relationship between manufacturers and governing bodies, is that a, a positive or a negative, do you think, Shaq? Feels like a negative. Oh, it's a negative, and, and it's, uh, I mean, they're just, they just don't play fair. And this, this current group of people at, at the USJ and RNA have followed all their protocols, and they, uh, you know, they, uh, we all think they could do better on how they sell it. Uh, I think they've made a huge mistake not including more discussion about uh, safety issues at golf courses, driving range safety issues at courses that use nice balls, um, uh, not pushing back on the grow the game crap that the uh, manufacturers have peddled that this will grow the game. Um, uh, and then the safety uh, of of the physical safety issues. Uh, I, I had this conversation with many of them. Well, you know, why aren't you discussing the fact that is this what we want for a sport? People swinging as hard as they can, chasing speed. And it's just, it's just not even on their radar to, to get involved in that part of it. And I, and I, I guess I can understand that that would, that would be more of the, the tour should be thinking, are, are, do we want that for the game where we have players that are injured more frequently and they, they don't care. They're just, it's about marketing, whoever the, thing is of the moment so um yeah the, the the but the the manufacturers have not played fair and then to have the tour basically peddling talking points of of one of them is just astonishing to see when you know where we were with dean beeman uh and and tim fincham not wanting to be involved in the rules really it's very uh it's disappointing uh because these companies are doing very well right now for the most part uh they're doing exceptionally well uh, because the sport is, or the game is pretty healthy. It has nothing to do with anything that they've made or the prices that they're selling it at or the players at the top right now. It's related to COVID and uh, free time and the economic circumstances. So I, that's where I don't I don't think you can ever, and I think that's why they called their bluff finally on this. They went, okay, you don't want the model local rule? Then we're just going to do it for everybody. And um, But even that, I feel like they could sell better. There should be a chart with every club head speed on there um 
But then, of course, I don't know if you guys have found this out. When I've had people bending my ear about this, I go, "Well, all right. So what's your what's your what's your club head speed?" Well, I don't know. Don't know. Well, 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 if you don't know that, then that means you haven't been on a launch monitor. That means you haven't been fit. You haven't even taken advantage of the opportunity. If distance is so important to you, you haven't even done the things that you need to do uh, with the equipment that we have. So f off and leave me alone. And I don't want to hear your crap. Um, but they, but there's so many things that that they just pounce on the companies if they don't roll it out properly. And uh, and right now they've gotten the players uh, so riled up about this. And uh, it's a shame because uh, um, I think it's in their interest to to see not a rollback, but these tweaks to the testing and the rules to bring out their skill more. And that's where Rory came around. He was not on board with this. And he finally realized uh, that one, I think he was at a disadvantage a few times down the stretch where where guys got away with stuff. And then um, I think he's recognized that the way the game is played is not that interesting uh, or as interesting as it should be. And I I, I credit Tiger because it sounds like Tiger's the one who's 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 shown him some things, brought out the baladas, brought out the persimmon, uh, things like that. So um, not us, Shaq. We haven't been the influencers there, you know. It was not us. Tiger credit. Sorry, um, Rod. All this work we put in for all these years. Ah, he might have read something. You know, he actually reads. So yeah, there's, yeah. A chance, there's a chance. There's a chance. And your analogy in the the future of golf, Jeff, which everyone, which was how did that sell that book? It should have sold a billion copies. Of that book. It was such a great. It was book. a little before its time. In yeah, terms I was of making the case. Now. Yeah, 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 we should reprint it. But yeah. but your analogy with tennis, you know, the, the game's better because it's easier to play. And that, I mean, I'm sure there was other reasons why tennis fell off the map in America, but the numbers, what were the numbers with Americans playing tennis with wooden rackets versus the modern racket? They went, oh, yeah, they plummeted 25 yeah, million plummeted. to five million, whatever. So that was kind of proof in that game, at least, that making the game easier to play didn't translate to having more people right. play. In fact, it was, was decimated in terms of the participation numbers. And look what's going on with pickleball now. It's a it's a less it's not a power game. It's a, it's a little smaller scale. People of different ages and talents can play, uh, and I think those attributes are are why it's growing. And it's got a it's got a uh, social element. It's got a time element. It doesn't take as long. It's and it's it's physical, but it's not excessive. Uh, we know tennis can be really hard on the body, and and I think you know it speaks to that. That why golf is, uh, I think, having a little bit of a resonance is all that effort to legitimize nine-hole rounds. We've got par three courses now that are being built or they're being um, – remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago we people would just not even consider par three or executive golf to be real golf. Like, well, now it feels like that barrier is gone, that any form of golf is golf. You're part of the family and that's great, but it has nothing to do with anything the tour pros have done and, or the manufacturers of finding ways to make uh, less expensive uh, equipment or, you know, we can go on and on the list. So Mm. I'm just disappointed that the tours uh, have so much trouble recognizing and, 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 and even, I mean, I would put this to Frank, I, I wish television would speak up to this, you know, that they have to see that power doesn't translate to TV. Uh, maybe when NBC does that grid, that's kind of cool. And you see who the long drives were of the day, 
and the speed shot that Tommy Roy does. But other than that, power doesn't translate at all to TV. Mm. Uh, but shot shaping does, recovery shots do, and of course, great chip-ins and pull-outs and stuff around the greens are do. And I, I so that's just compared to what goes on in other sports in our country, it's it's shocking how what what a lack of introspection they have at the tour about making sure the the product is as good as it can be. Didn't they, didn't they just well, one of the key shots of the year was was with the Potter, Canadian Open. Yep. Nick Taylor from seventy feet making eagle to win the Canadian. All oh, right, short, course, short, yeah. shortest club in the bag, and and uh, that was probably the best TV moment of the year, to be honest as well. Yeah. Didn't involve and, a three hundred and fifty yard drive. That's right. One drive. It involved and the situational yeah. tournament on the line. Situational, yeah. Yeah, Pat Fletcher, last Canadian to win, like nineteen fifty eight, but. Just going back to your book that Plates picked up too, I would say your bowling analogy in the future of golf in America, when when they changed the the bowling ball to spin ball, and as you detailed, you the the number of three hundred games went through the roof, and then bowling went down. So that's what worries me about golf is that to your point, Plates too, driving was is an absolute skill, and it should be a reward. So a long straight hit, whether it's cut into the fairway, drawn high, low, doesn't matter. A ball that's fit in the fairway at a good distance should be a massive advantage. But when everybody in the field is 300 plus, when the driver becomes the easiest club to hit under pressure, then you have to look at the game and say, this is where we have to tweak it a bit. So that is more than the golf ball um, itself. And that's where, you know, I know I don't like the term rollback, I don't know, restore, whatever the case may be, just take off what we gave. You know, I don't, I don't know what the right lingo would be, but you, you would actually know with a tournament on the line, whether it's male or female, and with three good par fours to play, whatever the case may be, and the driver is probably the club that's going to be hit, hit three more times. The tournament is very much up in the air, but Wyndham Clark, who's a tremendous talent, when he can sort of carve one at the 18th hole at LA Country Club and, and use a fairway that's 80 yards wide and still be in play, um, you know, that's I don't think that's how you want to finish the job. And and we yeah, see that yeah. far too often now. Which side of that argument are you on, Shaq? Uh regarding the Clark T shot, you yeah. Know, or I yeah, think yeah. Well because yeah. you thought but, it was okay and Lawrence didn't, right? Oh yeah, we still argue about it. I okay, still right, have yeah. to listen to people bitch about it. the fairway's yeah. about fifty <laughs> yards, first of all. Um, it's a brutal tee shot from back there. It's dead into the sun. He hit a three. I'm, I can't believe I know all these numbers. He hit a 314 with a 186 ball speed. Rory hit a 321-yard drive, which I watched with a slight draw with the wind straight from the left. Totally bizarre wind. And by the way, with that wind, if you hit a if you you hit a little bit of a floater, it's lost ball. It's gone. And that was the whole reason to shift the fairway over was to bring that into play. The players pitched. The fairway was too narrow. The USGA, you know, the line was bad. It was not a great looking line, and that was the problem. Anyway, I would I would also go back, by the way, to uh, his shot on 14 on the second shot on the par five, uh, going for shot. that at a two. Probably second best shot of the year. I mean, Michael Block's all in one was pretty great too, of course. Uh, but same thing. Uh, what was it, 268? Uh, kind of a weird lie. Again, a shot, if he loses it right, it's gone. It just goes down a hill in there in Spelling's backyard, and you're just toast. And uh, and Scotty Scheffler did that in the Walker Cup. He hit it way out of bounds, and um, that shot was tremendous. But it was it was it was a three wood just, and it just got to the green, and you knew he got in that little opening. And like Frank said, circumstances 
you know, those are the great moments. And that's what I, it's just frustrating to not see that realization more from more people. The business interests are just the only thing they they but, think But about. you snuck uh, something in there, Jeff, too, which I don't think a lot of people realize, is that 18th fairway was widened because players threatened to go down the first fairway. Yes. So yeah. so that, that's the problem. Like before, you used to have to play the, you they used to have have play the golf yeah. course. Yeah, you'd yeah. run up, even if you didn't like the hole, and you adjusted to it. And I think now that's where sometimes I think players have too much power. I think the complaints should come afterwards. The adjustment factor is in how you, you see the golf course, you do your homework, and may the best man win. It, it seems to be now we go, well, this isn't right, or I don't like the internal out of bounds. I was going to whip it over there. Can't do that. And then, oh, that's better. You've trimmed that out. I like it. I'm going to play. Um, I think that was one of the beauties of the game, too. In, in years gone by, the, the best coach with the situation, the best. We placate now too much. We give them yardage. We make the holes easier. We make the running schools and the 20-plus under par. And, and I don't think I don't think we do anybody justice. I don't think we do the fans, uh, the, the athlete themselves. Frank, sell me on the idea that making the game harder is a good business case because if we could do that – that would solve many of the problems. If we could get the manufacturers on board with the notion that somehow going back to when the game was somewhat more difficult is good for business, if we could do that, all the other questions and answers would fall into place, wouldn't they? So make the business case. Well, yeah, uh, to use tennis as an analogy, right? You know, uh, the guys we're talking about American tennis and then Europe, the European explosion, right? Because the Europeans played on the tougher surface, clay. All the best players come on clay. They learn they have to have their better footwork. They have to have a full array of shots because that's what um, that's what clay does. Hardcore tennis is slam bam, thank you, ma'am. Right. So you see the same with golf. Golf is the equivalent nowadays of like a hundred and forty mile an hour serve. Bang, hit it, can't retrieve it. There you go. So it's it's not that. That's once again the verbiage. It's not harder. It's just making it better, and it should be what easier. Easier to differentiate between the best players and the not so good players if you make the game a little more transparent. Is it what about more? more, well, more well, no, I, I interrupt you. More sophisticated? What yeah. if we use that? Because I mean, I think that. But then it makes us right. It makes us sound more elitist, even more elitist. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We've, we've done a fair job of that in the forty out. minutes or so yeah. already. I suspect. <laughs> Is it the key? Shaq, more golfers. doesn't matter what standard they play or how, if you can create more golfers, and that's got to be good for business. Do you see the point of that? If we could make the case well that it would be good for business, this move to make the game more interesting look a bit more like it used to, wouldn't that solve most of the problems? At the moment, you've got this resistance from manufacturers, this fear that if you change anything, they'll lose whatever it is they have, they'll go backwards. And I'm not sure that's reality. Two examples there with bowling and tennis. Made it easier. Game looked much more impressive at the professional level, and people flocked away from it. The game shrank. Now, that's a real danger for golf. We were in that period just before COVID. We've tried this argument, tried to point out the relatability element um, that's gone. You know, the game is less relatable. Uh, and then they just kind of go, well, that people want to watch. They don't want to watch mediocrity. They want to watch guys do and women do things they can't do. So it's a tough argument, uh, but I would agree with you. Yes, that 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 uh, there should be a case there that if it's if it's a more interesting game, a more diverse game in terms of the ways you can play, and we've beaten that one, 
you know pretty hard on this this show that it's a more beautiful game when a when a guy who's five six can can be just as good as the one who's six two and hits a thirty by him, but he does he gets around with all these other little little tricks of the trade and and skill level things that and that's the beauty of golf is that all these different skills have to come together and we're kind of weeding that out to where it's just two key skills um maybe three uh and that's just not as interesting but trying to make that case has been has been tough and that's why i mentioned the television part i and i've had this chat with with uh frank's current uh boss and tommy roy and and um you know, and and it's not their job either. But television executives I've chatted with, and like, don't you want, don't you want a a, a a more interesting game? You know, do do you want to be what tennis became with Pete Sampras and and that era? And not to pick on Pete Sampras, he was just doing with the equipment and what he could do. But that was brutal. That was a brutal time for tennis, and that's kind of where we're, like Frank said, we're. I mean, we're basically it's hard court year round, except at the Open Championship. Um. And and you know a handful of other events that uh, when they go to Royal Melbourne or I, I thought I thought L A Country Club and and the more I pour I was pouring through the shot link the other day, uh, it called on all sorts of skills and there were all sorts of weird numbers that you don't normally get. There were multiple ways to play holes and there were flat greens were hard to putt and the sloped brutal greens weren't. I mean it was weird weird stuff to look at. But that I like that I like that it wasn't so cookie cutter. And you just think that, yeah, you know, like I said, every other sport in the U.S. is constantly refining, and with television, by the way, in mind, mm. not just the game, but the safety of the sport, the health of it, the way it's played. And for whatever reason, the interests in the, in in golf are just so powerful that that uh, that's a tough, uh, it's a tough argument, and they're very good at uh, misinformation as well. So. Uh, it's a it's a tricky one, but uh, we won't know for a long time now what impact this this uh, rule change will have. And unfortunately, speaking of you know the Corey Pavin and Kelvin Pete type player being not existing anymore, Kazuma Kabori, Frank, a countryman of yours, mm-hmm. played the Asian amateur, then turned pro and played well in Australia at the end of the year. And I was watching him on the range, and I said to some guy, "You know, what do you think of this kid?" He said, "Can't hit it far enough," mm-hmm. which is like. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That you know, there's a kid who's that good at golf, and I think he'll be fine. I think he's a good enough player to be, you know, he'll he'll do well. But you know, how can you rule someone out just because they don't hit far enough? Just because they only drive at 280 yards? I mean, it's it's ludicrous that someone with, you know, for his age, that level of skill, well, he can't make because he can't hit far enough. Well, it's just a stupid thing for golf to be doing. Yeah, I, I, I think because people don't. They don't even really look at the game and they go, you know, ask the question, why is there 14 clubs? Yeah, so you're going well, to put such yeah. an emphasis on one of the 14 clubs. And I just just to throw in one thing, just the previous conversation, the number one sport in the world watched is soccer. Soccer. And what's the average score? One nil, yeah. two one. So in other words, right. it's not a goal a minute. So yeah. people watch because you have you have small, big, fast, slow, big, you know, like whatever the case may be, people that can kick, people that can pass. Um, they're not the fastest runners. Some are incredibly fast. As you you have such diversity, and and if it, people know that one goal might spell a difference, and they might wait, and the goal might be scored in the first minute, and then you waste you wait eighty nine minutes to get a result. So I, I think people are savvy enough in golf too when they see it played at such a high level. And and I'm not necessarily parochial to a U.S. Open type. I'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination. But when you know it's nip and tuck. 
you know, whether it's a Tiger Woods winning back in 2019, whether it's Mickelson, you know, breaking the record for the oldest ever, ever play, you know, it's the suspense of the situation. It's not necessarily about 340 yards, everybody down the fairway. It's so much more than that. Mm. You're yeah. certainly at the professional level. It's what you're watching. It's, it's for the, the amateur level too. You talk to one of your mates, right? They're paying for five dollars, and they make a five footer on the last. Did it really matter if it's for five, six, or seven? No. It was for five dollars to beat their mates. That's what the game's all about. Hmm. Yeah, of course. The distance, and the other thing about it, we often forget, Frank, is that it's relative. And Shaq mentioned the grid that yeah. NBC, I think it is, puts up sometimes, and it shows it wouldn't matter what the numbers were. It's the position of this ball in relation to that ball is what's important. So if 280 is long and someone hits a 290, that's amazing, and someone hits a 260, that doesn't matter whether it's 260, 280, 290, or 300. That is just relative, and it feels like we completely miss that uh, in the game. No, nobody ever thinks about that. Well, if I lose five yards and you lose five yards, nobody's really lost anything, have they? <laughs> we're, just, we're, playing, we're just playing from a, a little bit. Further back, Clay, you play with a lot of young players and meet a lot of people outside of golf, as does Frank. Um, I never used to. I do so more than I used to. Mm. What's your take on what other people think about the game? We, Frank touched on it earlier. This Chamberlain Park, the course where he started in Auckland, is under pressure. The land is under pressure. This is happening more and more. We see in Australia. What's your sense of what people outside the game think of golf, and how does all of this stuff with live and the money and the designated events and all of that? How does that play into some of those issues? Because fundamentally. Kind of doesn't matter what happens to professional golf. None of us really believe no. that. We, we all like it. Yeah. It kind of doesn't matter. What really is important is that people still get to play golf on a weekend badly, the way I have done for most of my life. How's all that impacted? Do you think? Well, the mistake of the the live thing is that people talk about it like it's golf when it's not golf at all. I mean, golf would exist without the professional tour perfectly happily because it's a great game. But, um. Now I've missed the point of your question. Sorry. Um. What do people outside uh, the game think that you talk to? I I, I don't know. You know. Do they look at golf the way we look at polo and think it's a really entitled rich man's sport? I mean, you know, I, I think, I mean, the majority, I mean, golf's one of the biggest participation sports in Australia, but still only less than 10% of people play it. So I think most people who play golf would see it as a, you know, the, the, the old, you know, the old cliche, the rich white man's game. When it's, when it's far from that at all here, you know, it's not that at all. You go to the public courses here and everyone's playing it. So, so it's, uh, you know, it's a very egalitarian game here. We we're, talk- we're playing with um, Sue's boyfriend, who's the pro at Shady Oaks, and we're, you know, we're talking about the difference in what it costs to play golf here versus what it costs to play golf in America. You know, so, so I mean, people don't understand how accessible and relatively cheap and how great the game is in Australia. And I think, and I think people who don't play it just see it as a rich and told upper class white man's game. Yeah, Which it's you know that, that's a part of it, but it's not the whole story here by by, by any means. Frank, you're, you're a bit like Clates. You talk to people who aren't in golf quite a bit. What's your sense of the outside view of the game, and how does that impact some of that that lower level stuff? Not so much the professional game, but what we're talking about. You could lose the course where you started playing. That's madness to me. Sadly, some people don't care. I think that that has to be set up front because they say we deserve it, really, um, because. For some people, we've taken a park away. I say we're guaranteeing a park. But, you know, I was always wanting, even in TV, you know, I'll go, whether it's in a bar or a pub, ask someone what they thought of the broadcast or ask someone what they think of the game because I think they tell you the truth. And and for some people, they, they do. They they love the 350-yard drive. Other people hate it. And I think the, the one common denominator 
is people don't like the space that golf is in right now. Yeah. They don't like the conflict because golf was, you're either in it or you're out of it. Right. And, and flights is right. You know, we, we, it's a very latest sport, right? So you either, you like golf or you didn't like golf, but now it's like, well, out of the people that like golf, they're split. And then those people are also split when it comes to the rules and the ball and the club. So, you know, you start splitting something several times and and you dilute it, dilute it a lot. So now you get, are you a live supporter and are you pro rollback or are you a live supporter and you're any rollback? Are you a PJ tour world golf supporter and pro, you know, like we've just, no, no, no. We, it should be golf first and foremost. Like I, I've asked this question, especially over 2023. I said, you know, forget everything that's going on right now. What's the best place golf could be in in three years? And I haven't had one decent answer. Now, I haven't got one either. Right now, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, like everybody talks about where we are right now. But I said, so so what would make golf to you better? Some people say cheaper. That's one thing I do get. So with the manufacturers, yeah. I generally think the public. I have a good friend. He's a left-hander at the club that I'm Lake Nona here. He went to a fitting. He paid $500 for a fitting, and he was sold a $2,000 set of irons. He had graphite shafts. He's 65 years of age. He had graphite shafts in his old clubs, which were R11s, tailor-mates. He was given a set of clubs that were not given. He paid for them. Half an inch shorter and steel shafted. So he's long, you know, he's he's getting older. He's not getting younger. He should have lighter clubs, everything. And and I looked at him, just picked them up. All the lofts and lies were were completely off off the scale, all shot. And he's he's paid two and a half thousand dollars for the privilege of forfeiting clubs. And so, so, so my beef with the manufacturers, hey, if you're going to charge, it better be a top quality product. Deliver. And I don't want to give the brand away, obviously, all that, you know, because I think it's equal opportunity. But I think that's disgusting. I, I really do. Because, you know, he wanted 65. He thought, okay, I need clubs that are going to help me because I love the game going forward. And he plays off like 12. So, you know, he's fine. I mean, he shoots low 80s and all that. He nearly gave the game up. Because these clubs, I mean, he was hitting shanks and snap hooks and all that. And I persuade him to put his old clubs in the bag. And then all of a sudden, within a couple of days, he started, you know, he's back to his 12 handicap. So you pay for the privilege? I don't think so. So, yeah, yeah. the general consensus I get is that golf is too expensive. That's the one thing that is common. Yeah. And I mean, golf balls have presumably never been cheaper to make, they're just a stone with a cover on it. Versus the liquid center with the wounding and the bladder. And, have you not you been know, reading the marketing clades? A stone with a color on it. I don't think I've read any of the manufacturers I mean, suggest that that's what they're producing. I mean, surely a golf ball should be a dollar. Not, not, what are they costing the states now? Five bucks? I mean, they're $7 here, I think, yeah. for a Titleist. So yeah. it's crazy how much golf balls cost now. Yeah. Anyway, the manufacturers it, are listening. They'll have had a heart attack listening to you well, there, Clades Shack. You know, <laughs> well, I want to ask Clades, but you were going to say something, Clades, and I was going to, I want to ask you a question. I can't remember what I was going to say. So ask me oh, okay. Well, so uh, if if we can get the 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 balls that would, cur- would that are currently on the market that would conform in twenty twenty eight, yeah, which USGA and RNA say is about thirty percent of the list, which is a long list. Um, would you, as tournament director of the Sandbell Invitational, <laughs> require players next year to use one of those balls again? If we can get the list, it's going to be a tough. It's going to be tough to get that out of the manufacturers. It's not going to come from the governing bodies. Would you would you mandate it so that they to see how this plays? Not a bad idea. Good idea. I, okay. I mean, I'll work on the list. <laughs> I'll be for it for sure. 
I think he, well, what do well, you, know, what do you get, what do you get a visit point. in the night from, yeah. from, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from a certain company? I don't know. Yeah, but, he might, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not so comfortable anyway, being the tournament director now, is it, Clates, when you've got to yeah. make real decisions yeah. in the real world? It's all yeah. very interesting. I've just noted how long we've been going, and it's been a fabulous yeah, conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it enormously. But one last question to wrap up, and same question for all of you, and I'll start with you, Clates, and then you, Frank, and then Jeff. This feels to me – and you've been around the game a lot longer than I have, these are the biggest shifts at every level of the game that I can think of, from councils wanting to close down golf courses here in Australia and turn them into parks to the Live PGA Tour thing. All of it feels like the biggest shifts I can recall every now. Really genuine, said the, the, the talk about rollback, et cetera. Hmm. Um, what's your take on sort of where the game is? Uh, will ultimately this prove a good thing for golf? Do we need to go through this division and bad time, for want of a better term, to get to a better time? Yeah, probably. I, mean, I think the, you know, the interesting thing here is that the council's wanting to take public golf away and turn golf courses into parks. Uh, Chamberlain Park, Moore Park, Oakley, you know, it's a bad thing for the game. Uh, ultimately, in Australia, certainly, people love what golf courses do for the environment, but they hate the game. You know, the, you know the, the, the sort of this weird dichotomy between, you know, you can't cut a tree down because the trees are really important, but they actually hate golf. You know, so it's... um. It's, it's interesting. I, I think the game's always going to be fine because it's such a great game. It's an amazing game. And talking to Frank about, you know, where, where would the game be in three years? We Well, not me, but in the, in the end, but they rebuilt Sandringham Golf Course, which is a pretty average public golf course over the road from Royal Melbourne, and made it, made it way better. I, I think, and I think Jeff would probably agree that the future of the game is better, better architecture, better golf course, made the game more fun and more compelling. So we played the... 14-hole par three course at Barnboogle the other night with Richard and his daughter-in-law who's eight months pregnant who walked around with a dog and Richard's son and Sue and a boyfriend. And we, and it was just par three. It was. It took us an hour and a half because we were just talking shit and doing our thing. And, but it was so much fun. I mean, it's such a cool game. for you know, The dog had a great time chasing the wallabies and you know, she was eight months pregnant but she could walk around and have fun and enjoy it. And, you know, that, that, that better architecture is such a critical part of mm. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it's what you know. It's a diversion, but what Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw have done is changed the course of architecture. They've they showed us what Mackenzie showed us and Ross showed us what great golf golf course architecture was. And ultimately, better golf is always going to be better for the game. Better architecture, better golf, more fun, more inventive. Yeah. So, so in terms of Frank's three-year question, that's a fifty-year question going forward, but. Making better architecture and golf more fun is a critical part of its future. Frank, am I overstating it? Are these the most sort of catastrophic of times, for want of a better term, in golf that you've seen? You've been around the game like Clates for longer than I have. No, and- no, I, I, I'm worried, uh, and I think for good reason. Our sport's easy to attack because if you look at society, right, we're the haves, the rest of the have-nots, we're the, you know, we can talk about the demographic the game has, maybe from a TV point of view, but in the end, we're the poster child for the sport to pick at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, makes a lot of money, you know, we, we don't have the same base as some of the other sports, we're not a kick a soccer ball round. Um, so yeah, we're an easy target. I'd, I'd sort of like to just take one segue. I, I hope over the next few years, the, the public golf comes back. In a much bigger way, yep. so that the investment forget first tee programs. In my opinion, bring back you know affordable golf. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the only that's the only way it really is to get people involved and say, listen, we actually do want you to play. 
First tee, the thing I didn't like about that, a kid gets to 18 or 19, he can't be a member of any club, can't afford it. So we've introduced him purely as a viewer. Huh. So so I think we do have to look ourselves in the, in, in, in the mirror and go, okay, what have we done wrong? What can we correct? Um, so I, I think the, the advent of Live has exposed us for, for really what we are too, we chase money. That's what our sport's really all about. Um, people have used lots of different verbiage over the last two years. Oh, I grow the game. I want to play less. You know, we know that's not true. But so once again, look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, you know we're fortunate. And and so what can we do with it, within our game to actually make it better for other people around? How can we share the wealth of our sport in some respects? I don't necessarily know the answer to that. But, yeah, it's, it's trying times. The game is too expensive. And, and I think we've ostracized too many people in the process. So that's what worries me. It's a great game. I think everybody on this pot agrees with it. We want other people to enjoy, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 64 this year. I, I, everything in my life today that I have has been because of golf, whether it's with a club, whether it's walking around there, whether it's people I've met, or even the job I have now is because of golf. So the least least I can do is at least try and be a supporter for the game. Yeah, the joy of joining us, Frank, to have a good old-fashioned man wind, which you don't get to you do. You guys got up athletes. early. I didn't have to. Fantastic. <laughs> Shaq, same question for you. This giant hairball that is golf, and when you pull on one thread over here, it has an impact over here that you couldn't think of when you pulled that originally. Are these the the most troubled of times that you can recall, and are they ultimately going to be good for the game, perhaps? Well, you know I always take the positive uh, <laughs> perspective on these things, Rod, and I just wrote a column for links that – uh, I think it's an amazing time. The sport uh, is getting a lot of bad publicity. Uh, people are uh, have a negative view of golf professionals. Uh, it was a cute story for a while. Now they're tired of it. But the recreational game uh, appears to be thriving throughout. And and while we know there there are real issues with the perception of the sport when it comes to a public golf course. And and we have multiple under threat here, and they've I think they've managed to fight off on three of the five in Southern California that were in danger. But you would if you listen to people, there would be that elitist stuff would come out, and you're like, well, "Have you been out to that place? That has nothing to do with the things that are going on in that pro game." So there are people who attach um, the greed and the nonsense and the spoiled brat kind of thing that's developed to the game. But the numbers say it has not d- deterred everyday golfers from uh, this thing that's happened post-COVID or during COVID where where they've gotten connected with the sport combined with all the great things that have happened of legitimizing other forms of the game. Top golf is a huge uh, barrier breaker, I think, in terms of either getting people in the game or watching the sport or not hating it um, and, you know, on many levels. It's been fantastic here. So... I think it's actually quite positive that the recreational game has continued to thrive. I think the thing, though, that has to happen, and it's where the USGA and the RNA um, probably miss their calling and they're starting to catch up now, certainly on the RNA side. I think the USGA is still a little bit like, I don't know if we're in the, we should be in this business, but they should be in the business of restoring uh public courses and 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 save and fighting for them um and not and not not these i mean some of the price tags are getting silly we're not talking you know a meticulous uh, restoration but just a freshening up yeah. you know we've seen it in so many communities you just freshen up the bunkers you you, you know you have to do the irrigation system whatever um and 
the other thing we've seen is uh, if, improve, if there's improved food and beverage and the community knows they can come and enjoy that place too. It's amazing how many people think they can't go have breakfast at a public yeah. golf course. And when they do, they they tolerate the game more. Um, so there's view, isn't weird it? little <laughs> stuff like that. What's that? Yeah. I said it's a great view, isn't it, to go and have breakfast at a golf course? Well, it's a, it's a, yeah, exactly. Fabulous. Usually. Yeah, and we have all these places that have gone to this indoor-outdoor thing, and, and they're in a convenient location, and it's a little mellower, whatever it is, um, That's and then makes people go, oh, these people aren't so awful. So there's, But yeah, all these, these other campaigns and other nonsense just don't really hit home. So I think that's the... I think that's the positive. It's terrible news for the pro game that that they're not seeing that. I mean, I can I I I do not bring it up. I do not say anything, and people just start saying to me, "I'm not going to watch these guys anymore. I'm just going to watch the majors and maybe Riviera and and Pebble Beach. I like and I uh, you know and this and that. And otherwise, what a bunch of jerks. I don't want to watch that anymore. And that's it. Yeah, I'm assuming they have marketing data telling them that. So uh, that's their. But again, it's not dragging down the everyday game. So as far as I'm concerned, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's right. I was there's a sunny take. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just, Frank. Yeah, that's all right. And Plates as former professional golfers, no, right. but anyway, I was at Port Ferry a couple of weeks ago, right? Which is a- oh, keep flexing, why don't you? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, he really <laughs> is. Wow. Three and a, three and a half hours out of Melbourne. It, just down the road from Mark Leishman's hometown. And it's a popular course. It's a just got ranked 29 in Australia, which would we were discussing it. We would probably just put it in the top 100 in the UK. It's about the level. It's a really good, fun course. And the captain said, the captain of the club said, how do we sort of stop people coming here? You know, it's, it's, we're so busy. The members can't get on. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you should charge more. So the membership at Port Ferry is 700 Australian dollars a year. Wow. And the green fees are like 60 bucks, and the place yeah. is packed. I said, well, you put your prices up. Right. Yeah, that's the only way to stop people coming because it's such a great course. It's a beautiful right in the sea, $700 a year to be a member. Yeah, stop it's, it's you talking a about it, Clates. I put that blame for that completely. You've been talking about Port Ferry yeah. for 20 years yeah. since nobody yes. knew about it, and because yeah. you've been talking about it, now everybody knows about it. Now the members can't get a game. So that's on you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. You need yeah. to take responsibility. Yeah. No, it's an amazing uh, place. It's brilliant. For, uh, for that. Well, I'll – out of all of that, who knows? I think what you're talking about there, Shaq, with the professional, that's market correction, isn't it? Isn't that a market correcting? Isn't that what capital, isn't how capitalism works? Yeah. People go, I'm not going to watch this, 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 and this. So they're uh, not buying that. They're buying this. That's what you sell. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. that'll be painful. You're right. It'll be painful professional golf, but that's kind of how markets work. Well, well, it, it is, but Martin, Seth Wall is the only person I've heard uh, bring up this concern that this is something we got to get past. <laughs> this is not, we can't just be talking about money all the time, but otherwise I, I haven't really seen the great deal of concern shown from other parties in, in the uh, elite p- parts of the game. And, and uh, well, there's, there's I think Martin the- Summers maybe has said something a little bit, but not many. Well, there's still so much potential huge money sloshing around if you're at the top end of the game because that live PGA Tour thing's not done. As you said, Ram was a big deal. Frank and Norman's been claiming there's plenty of others to come. So we're still in that phase, aren't we? That'll pass soon enough once they've picked off all the players they can. Then I think that a narrative changes, don't you think, Frank? That that I, I we think move we're out of that phase. Point. Yeah, I, I think Ram's fee, not to yeah. bog it down even more. I, I think it was almost a finder's fee. And I think if you look at it that way, yeah. then then it makes more sense, especially with his narrative over the last couple of years of what he thought and that. It was almost like um, 
this is the last warning. If you're going to go to Fenway and shop around for other investors, here you go. Do you want more evidence that that, that we're yeah. not messing around? Yeah. And and I thought tactically it's a brilliant move. Yeah. And and it, whether it's Phil's relationship, should I say John's relationship with with Phil or whatever it was like. And it might even be in John, and it'll probably come out in, in, I don't know, hopefully later on in the year or years to come. In other words, that maybe it's John Rahm saying he felt this is a way to get things back on track, and I might as well get paid for it. So in other words, if it gets done and the tour did the deal by uh, December 31st, then John would get his finder's fee. If it didn't, he'd get a hat full of cash, and it would speed up the process. But I really think it was, uh, you know, from a business point of view, you know, if you're going to put in a couple of billion dollars, that was strategically, it was like a very powerful move. He's interesting, isn't he, Frank? He, he kind of he, he goes with integrity, Ram. Somehow, I feel he, mm. he's he's in a different league. He's he's been anti-live publicly, and yeah. he's talked about his concern. He takes all that integrity. It seems to have stayed with him. And most people, I think you're right. He's a, he's kind of a, he's the only one I can think of who've gone to live that you might think that about. Mm. That he's he's thought about it more than just what's in this for me. That he takes some integrity in that in with him in that decision. So I might be wrong. But yeah, I, I think. Well, you'd already had phase one. All the other guys had taken the heat. Yeah. So so this was a different level. Yeah. Yep. And and if all of a sudden we'd seen two or three other guys go, because if you read that they haven't filled the team out and all that, I really think that's irrelevant. They can jumble the numbers around and keep the same numbers in the team. And that I just think it was a strategic move. And I think the PJ Tour have have actually looked at it now and and uh and that they really have realized that you know this is yep. they overplayed their hand yep and uh and and it's a case of um you know, there's either two losers or one or you know collectively um, I believe in the game and I and I think that there can be a winner out of this and and it has to be accepting them to the table and it has to be we've got to get things back on track because th- th- it goes back to what everyone's talking about the game's still too good yeah and right now, we don't need the amount of negativity we've had for the last couple of years because we were one of the sports that came out of COVID extremely well. And we're just uh, we're just kissing all that sort of good faith that we got out of COVID goodbye. So it has to, I think it has to be done, yeah. and it has to be done fairly quickly. Yeah. Every war ends in a truce and peace, doesn't it, Frank? If, if we were just smart enough to realise it at the start, <coughs> forget all the shooting and the killing and go straight from yep. the let's have a war to let's do the truce and the peace, there'd be a whole lot less go. But I think you're right. There's only one way for this to end, isn't it? And that's in a truce and peace. So that's Yeah, hey, World War One. What is they assassinated uh, Ferdinand. That was it. That was the catalyst was all those start. years ago. And this was maybe Jay not picking up the phone. Yeah, indeed. So, we will, uh, sometimes we'll, yeah, it's a small thing, but. It'll yep. continue to unfold, and you're right. That negativity thing, more broadly about the game, isn't great, Frank, because that's our shtick here. So we need to yep. continue being different. Hey. Let's get back to everyone else being positive, <laughs> and we'll do the negative stuff. That's uh. our job. Frank Noble, been fabulous of you to join us. I love always listening to you talk about the game. You've been fantastic again today, mate. Really appreciate your thoughts. No, you got. I chat with you guys any day. I always, uh, I, I'm better off for it every time. <laughs> Thank you. Uh. We are too. Clates, I'm sure you agree with me. It's been fabulous to chat with Frank today, but it's also yeah, it's always fabulous great. to chat with you as well. So I was, I was caught up with Frank at the Royal Melbourne, which was it's always at, at the Asian Amethyst. It's always great to see Frank and dreaming about the days in the six pound a night Airbnb in, well, not, Airbnb in Glasgow. And, you know. Or a fee at 128 right yeah, there yeah, in Europe. Yeah, Didn't you yeah. have lessons with Mac O'Grady in the rain on the front porch of some B&B you told us one time? That, that was, was in Holland. I played with it, yeah. Mac O'Grady at the Lawrence Batley and Clates and I were staying together. We were travelling in a fee at 128. Somehow we got four people and two sets oh. of clubs in that. Oh, I'll never know. Yeah. And oh, I man. said, yeah. hey, Clates, you've got to play a practice around this guy. So we're in Holland and uh, that's where Mac hit like 
four seven irons into a par three front on, on edge, the, middle on, of the green yeah, over the yeah, back. Yeah. And then hit a driver left-handed, and uh, Tommy Bolt and Sam Snead played that year. They played that week? Was it? Wow. Okay. That was one of the most underrated performances in golf history ever. Mac was a pre-qualifier in Europe in 1982, and he finished 42nd on the money list and played the entire tour with eight clubs. Wow. Yeah, he finished third in the British PGA with uh, with eight clubs. Eight clubs. So – Frank came from the Lawrence Patley and said, I've just played with the best player I've ever seen. What's his name? Mac O'Grady. Yeah, he finished third in the PGA. So we played in Holland. I said, we got to the third hole at Utrecht with the greens 40 yards long at the pan. So how come you've only got eight clubs? So he hit a seven iron to the front of the green, same swing exactly, middle of the green, same swing exactly, but by looks to the back of the green. It was 40 yards difference with one club. He said, what have you got 14 clubs for? <laughs> it was an absolute genius, Mac. Where's O'Grady. today's Mac O'Grady? That's what we need. Yeah, for well, a sixteen-year-old yeah. kid that's doing doing the thing in the darts. We need yeah. that in golf. Yeah. Tiger yeah. was the last one we had that made that yeah. just jaw-dropping stuff. We need one another one of those. Shaq, it's been fabulous to uh, get your input as well. And I do recommend people listen to the McKellar Golf Podcast yourself and Lawrence. Fantastic stuff. And I think you guys have done the best job of covering live from all angles that I can see of all the sort of media out there. So people should tune in to And it. read and Jeff's books too. Read, read Jeff's yeah. books and yeah. sign up for the Quadrilateral. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, God, we're just on a plug fest. What yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'll just yeah. say thank you. Yeah, and your most recent book is a fantastic one as well. So uh, people can get and all I'll that stuff. I'll take Frank through the uh, 18th hole tee shot when I see <laughs> <Yeah>. him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, sounds like yeah. you might be fighting on a couple of fronts on that one, Jeff. So best of oh, luck with that. <laughs> I, have some, I have some yeah. friends that are members there, Jeff. They're not happy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? They should be very happy. They they survived. Yeah. The, 62, they can get over it. it, it yeah. 10 under one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for episode 130 of State of the Game, or well, the recorded part anyway. It feels like this might continue on after I press the stop <laughs> button, and we'll certainly enjoy that. We'll be back to do it all again next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.